With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of Demystified was made possible by our great patrons like Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon and earn benefits like bonus episodes, then go over to Patreon and look for Demystified by Ashley Styles, Or follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. It really helps the show out. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. 1511, the Yucatan Peninsula, what is today southern Mexico. The survivors of the shipwreck claw their way to the beach, scrambling for air and clinging to life. These dozen or so Spaniards are some of the first to make landfall on the continental Americas, and to them this might as well be another planet. The lush tropical jungles stretch as far as their eyes can see. The beaches, devoid of anything or any signs of human habitation, stretch further still. They rally themselves. Their ship, a caravel called the Santa Maria de la Barca, an early ocean-faring vessel, sunk in the night and left them abandoned and alone, with no way of returning home. Their ship founded off of Jamaica, and they'd been adrift for nearly two weeks. Half of their number had died in that time, but these few have managed to survive the perils of the open water, only to find themselves in a different kind of danger. One of the Spaniards looks up at the tree line and sees something moving, then more shapes shifting in the underbrush. He alerts his fellows, but before they can do anything, they see scores of men approaching them, all armed with strange weapons. They wear loincloths of white textile, and their hair is long. Their leader, at least the one they think is the leader, wears an elaborate crown decorated with long green feathers. He shouts something to his men, and they quickly begin restraining the Spanish. Without their weapons, there's little they can do. They soon find themselves being led deep into the jungle. They walk through the jungle, and it's about as terrifying as any walk can be. Every sound strikes fear into their hearts, as they've heard only rumours of the dangers that lurk here. Snakes bigger than a man, cats who you don't see until it's too late, and they've got you by the throat. And of course, the people. The Spanish opinion of these people is low. They'd seen how they're dressed, the seemingly makeshift weapons they use, sticks and stones as far as they're concerned. These savages may have them now, but soon they'd find out what they needed, how much gold these people had. Every Spaniard sailing west had heard that the lands were overflowing with gold and treasure. By the looks of the leader, though, this might not be the case. He seems to prefer jade to gold, wearing it in pendants and jewellery, as well as piercings. Soon the Spanish break a clearing, and they can hardly believe their eyes. Ahead of them is not, as they expected, a small village of mud huts and straw. Instead, they're met with the sight of towering temples, large open forums, pyramids and observatories stretching high into the sky, marketplaces and workshops, and a thriving community buzzing with activity. They walk along the prominent main road, made of raised limestone, that takes them through the heart of the city. They pass a court in which some men are playing a game, attempting to knee a ball of rubber through a raised hoop. The architecture of these buildings is of great interest too, all stone, some with thatched roofs and decorated vividly with bright paintings and exterior designs. The style is idiosyncratic, the Spanish have never seen it anywhere else before. 
Eventually, they arrive at a large platform where several other important-looking people and a large crowd gather around the base. They appear to be at the foot of a grand temple of some kind, decorated with an assortment of stucos and reliefs depicting strange and angry gods. Their shirts are stripped from them, and they soon find themselves painted with a blue dye before being lined up. The first man, the Spanish captain, Pedro de Valdivia, is dragged towards a stone table. With horror, the others can only watch as his heart is cut out of his beating chest with an obsidian blade and offered to a statue which is then anointed with his blood. The gruesome affair doesn't end with him. Four more Spanish are sacrificed. But some of them are held back, taken to a holding cell. These six men soon find themselves being fed, and they're terrified, and have no idea what to do. Some start wondering what will happen to them. One suggests that they've eaten their friends, and they're being fattened for that purpose too. Two of the men managed to escape, Gonzalo Guerrero and Geronimo de Aguilar. They fled to a neighboring Maya lord who took them as slaves for a time. Not ideal, but better than the fate that befell the others that didn't escape. However, the paths of these two men soon diverged. Whilst they both learned to speak the local language, either Yucatec or Chontal Maya, they differed on how they took this change in circumstance. Aguilar was a friar and held fast to his devout Christian faith. He refused the offers of women and work from the local lord, whose name was Nachan Khan. As such, whilst he did become a translator, he stayed a slave. Guerrero, however, took a wife when offered one. He fathered three children, which we think were probably the first mixed-race children in the Americas, and he worked his way up to becoming a war chief, achieving prominence and renown in the city-state, eventually becoming fully localized. But the Spanish had not ignored the Yucatan Peninsula, nor the Maya. The first actual contact had been back in 1502, and in 1517, an expedition was sent out to explore the area. The Maya were worried. It had been prophesied that Kukulkan, the great feathered serpent, would send an army of bearded men to attack them, and this seemed like a war ban to them, so, while some interactions were friendly, others weren't, and battles were fought between the Spanish and the Maya. The eventual result of this was Hernán Cortés's expedition to Mexico. Whilst that's most famous for its resulting destruction of the Aztec Empire, they made their landfall in the Yucatán Peninsula, in Maya territory. There, having heard rumours of the lost Spaniards, Cortés sent for them. Aguilar was keen to go. He'd been recently freed and was happy to return to the Spanish, but he couldn't convince Guerrero. His skin was tattooed, he had jade piercings, and he was living with a new family. Despite a lengthy discussion and Aguilar reminding him that his soul would be forfeit if he stayed with the Maya, Guerrero wouldn't budge. Aguilar met up with Cortes and acted as one of his translators. His eventual home in Mexico City would end up housing the first printing press in the New World. Guerrero would outlive Aguilar by five years, but died leading the Maya against the Spanish, killed by an arquebus in battle in 1536. As I said before, this was not the first contact between the Spanish and the Maya, nor was it necessarily the most important. In fact, the last Maya stronghold wouldn't fall until 1697. But this was an interesting little historical story that I couldn't resist telling, of the two Spanish men who lived among the Maya. But we're winding back the clocks for this tale today, because one thing that was noticed by both the Spanish and later archaeologists and anthropologists was that the scope of the great Maya cities far outstripped their populations. Many were abandoned entirely. Why is that? It's a common misconception that the Maya disappeared. They exist to this day, a prominent ethnic minority in Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, and El Salvador. They didn't disappear, 
but there are two starkly different periods of the Maya civilization that existed before and after a strange and little understood event. The event that led to the abandoning of their cities, and the downfall of a civilization whose recovery would end in a slow and painful conquest. So today on Demystified we look into the fact and the fiction behind the classic Maya collapse. Today on Demystified we're looking at the historical event known as the Classic Maya Collapse. As the name states, there are broadly speaking two major periods of the Maya civilization, as we understand it in a historical context and before you end up with the history of New Spain and the European empires. Classic and post-classic Maya. Now, there do exist pre-classic and archaic periods, which lasted from about 2000 BC to 250 AD and 8000 BC to 2000 BC respectively, but those periods are more defined by the development of the Maya civilization rather than its prominence and full existence. After those, you end up with the Classic Maya, the main time of Mayan cultural development and the time span in which their cities grew to truly astonishing sizes. But at some point in the 900s AD, the greatest of these cities were abandoned, and the Maya went into decline. They would recover somewhat from this decline, but the art, architecture, and even language and physical locations would all change, and the grandeur of what we speculate the classic cities to have been like wouldn't be recaptured in the same way. Now that we have a clear time period for the collapse, let's take a look at what the Maya civilization was like, and what the causes of the collapse were and the results. So the Maya world wasn't like the Aztec world. Some see them as interchangeable, but this is a massive oversimplification of pre-Columbian Mesoamerican culture. Primarily, the Maya are a far older civilization than the Aztec, predating them by thousands of years. Secondly, whilst the Aztec Empire was a triumvirate of cities, Tenochtitlan, Tlacopan, and Texcoco formed into one empire, the Maya world didn't have a single empire. Instead, it was far more akin to something a bit like ancient Greece or Renaissance Italy, city-states, each with their own spheres of influence, competing ideals and microcultures, fighting against each other and trading with each other, varying between cooperation and conquest as the needs saw fit. One of the defining features of the classic Maya period was the preeminence and usage of the Long Count Calendar. Now, you might know this from the film 2012 as its prediction of the end of the world, which was a total hoax and does not at all reflect or relate to how the Long Count Calendar worked. Formed in base 20 rather than base 10 as a counting system, so 20 toon is a cartoon, 20 cartoon is a bucktoon, so on and so forth, with a couple of exceptions, the Long Count calendar measured how long it had been since the world was created, a date which in the Gregorian calendar is roughly translated as the 11th of August, 3114 BC. The 2012 myth came from a misunderstanding of how the calendar worked in relation to Maya mythology. Like many other Central American pre-Columbian civilizations, the Maya believed that several worlds had come before this one, three worlds had been created and destroyed by the gods before this fourth world was made. Since the third world had ended at the end of its 13th Bakhtun, which is a measure of time, 144,000 days or roughly 394 years, and our world's 14th Bakhtun was due to start on December 21st, 2012, some took this to mean that our world would end then. But there's nothing to suggest that the Maya in any way thought that this would be the case. In the mythology, each world was destroyed for some reason or another, not just because it had to happen. Whilst it was believed that this world would and could end, the date was not specified. 
Now, the Maya of the Classic period were well known for their astronomy. Using their fully developed writing system of glyphs, the Maya were able to track and chart the movements of the solar system with incredible precision for a people without telescopes. For instance, their estimations of the length of a lunar month were more accurate than Ptolemy, and the post-classic Maya had a more accurate understanding of the tropical solar year than the Spanish when they first met each other, far outclassing the old world, again, not counting telescopes. The classic period is also known for its large-scale urbanization, and that's part of what makes it so prominent and unique. People started living in increasingly bigger and more uniform cities and started gathering in larger political entities. Whilst the most powerful and distant Mexican city-state of Teotihuacan, one of the oldest and most mysterious cities in Central America, did intervene in their politics, Maya city-state relations were largely self-determining, a complex web of alliances and vassal leisure relations developing. These cities had large agricultural bases, but weren't necessarily centrally planned like the Aztec cities. Oftentimes, they had to adapt to the geography of the area. In the north, where there was more flatland, the cities sprawled, whereas in the mountainous regions of the south, a kind of step building was used. The most powerful of these cities was Tikal, but others like Copan, Calakmul, and Palenque rivaled them. Tikal's population at its height in the late classical period, between 550 and 830, was thought to be around 100,000 people. For reference, London wouldn't get that big until the end of the Middle Ages. That said, the populations of the kingdoms entirely did vary quite considerably, with the largest cities commanding vassals of smaller sizes. More powerful kings could demand tribute from some of the client states. The centre of this great economic network was the central lowlands. The northern lowlands, where our introductory story took place much later, and these southern highlands were somewhat sidelined during the classic period. The city-states tended to associate their identities with the ruling dynasty rather than the land in which they ruled. As we'll look at later, the collapse of the royal family and the ruling lineage could result in the collapse of a city-state. Now, part of why we know so much about the Maya of this period is they left a lot of written records. Carved onto their great temples, monuments, and other buildings in stones, their glyphs tell us their stories and the histories of their kings, the changes of fortunes and the cities that rose and fell. The Maya participated in long-distance trade, all the way up north through Mexico, all the way down south through Central America, and along the coast of the Caribbean, Maya trade goods came and went. Their most valued possession was jade. They did have gold, but they didn't value it in the same way that later Europeans did. The feathers of the Quetzal bird were used to adorn the clothes of high-status figures in society. They had several different types of social structure. Most city-states were patrilineal, father-based inheritance, but some have been described as matrilineal, mother-based inheritance, or even bilateral with no clear lines of inheritance for rulership. Some were more centralized, others operated with clan structures. One thing that was prominent among the Maya, at least those who could get them, were body modifications. Changing the shape of the skull, teeth being filed into sharp points or inlaid with jade, bodies painted, red was common and the valuable blue or green were used to adorn sacrifices. Tattoos and scarification, both of which seem to have been somewhat interchangeable for their purpose, ear, lip, nose and cheek piercings, and even inducing cross-eyedness in children, all having important social and sometimes religious connotations. For instance, the Maya king Pakal had his incisors filed into T-shapes to change his facial structure in order to appear like the god of maize. Their weaponry was somewhat similar to the more well-known Aztec arsenal. Weapons made of and tipped with obsidian, the sharp volcanic glass that holds a razor's edge. Blowguns were used to fire darts, and whilst bows and arrows did exist, more common was the atlatl, a spear-throwing device which, by use of leverage, massively increases the distance with which you can throw a spear. 
Metal, although it did exist in the Maya world, was not commonly used for weaponry due to its relatively limited supply. Now, when it comes to the issue of human sacrifice as it related to the Maya religion, it was more of a special occasion than the norm. Whilst the Aztec and other Mesoamerican civilizations would routinely sacrifice people in order to appease gods like Huitzilopochtli, the sun god who required consistent sacrifice, the Maya would sacrifice animals rather than people. But people were sacrificed when times got dire. Pandemics, crop failures, or even special occasions deserving of a greater offering all merited human sacrifice, which was performed either via the removal of the heart with an obsidian blade or the piercing of it by an arrow fired at the victim, who was almost always painted with blue body paint. The blood would then be offered to statues and used to paint and adorn the temples. The rest of the Maya mythology is less well known than Aztec mythology. We do know some things, like that they had a feathered serpent deity called variously Kukulkan or Kuukumats, depending on the region, much like the Aztec Quetzalcoatl, but many of their gods' names aren't pinned down. For instance, that maze god I mentioned earlier had a bunch of different names, none of which are the verified one. I could explore the minutiae of Maya mythology all day, I find it very fascinating, but we'd be here all day for that. Then, around the 900s AD, came the collapse. We know that this happened in several ways. Firstly, there was a lack of recording of dates. New monuments that recorded the long count calendars stopped being built, so we knew that fewer cities that saw more and more monuments saw fewer and fewer monuments, and then none. We also know, due to testing obsidian artifacts and how they spread throughout the region, the rough populations of the cities throughout the years, and we see a pretty big drop-off at this point. This doesn't necessarily have sinister implications, merely that the people stopped living in the cities, indicating some form of societal collapse. Now, more than 80 different theories have been proposed as to why the Maya civilization collapsed. I can't look at all of those, so here are the most prominent ones. The first theory is that a foreign power invaded. This wasn't unknown to the Maya. For instance, Tikal had had a coup performed by the Mexican city Teotihuacan that we talked about earlier, and after that they became a regional powerhouse under their new sponsor. This theory goes that a people, probably the Toltecs from further north in Mexico, attacked the Maya city-states and that that caused the collapse. Now, this theory does have some archaeological evidence in the forms of evidence of Toltec intrusions into Maya territory and what is now Guatemala, but most historians dispute whether this would have been able to totally destroy the incredibly complex web of economics, politics, and social structures that encompass the classical Maya civilization. Remember, the post-classical civilization lasted until the 1690s with holdouts against the Spanish, and that total and rather devastating invasion wasn't able to cause them to collapse in such a manner. Then there's the idea that the collapse of trade routes caused the collapse, especially those going to and from Teotihuacan. Now, I cannot understate the importance of Teotihuacan in the history of Mesoamerica as a whole. At its height in the 500s AD, it had a population of around 150,000 people or more, bigger than Rome at the time. It was an absolutely enormous centre of trade, religion and culture. Its Pyramid of the Sun was the third largest pyramid in the whole world. So the theory goes that the decline and fall of Teotihuacan in the 700s caused an economic restructuring in Maya civilization that resulted in the abandoning of the central lowlands for new or other cities in the northern lowlands and southern highlands. But this theory now tends to be associated more with what's called a hiatus of the classic period around that time, rather than its later decline in the 900s. There is also the possibility that the increase in sea-based trade led to the prominence of the coastal northern cities and the collapse of overland, lowland trade that led to the abandoning of those city-states. Epidemic diseases have been considered a factor in the collapse. 
not surprising given their prominence in the collapse of other American civilizations after the Columbian Exchange, the arrival of the Europeans in America. The tropical rainforests of the Maya lowlands are rife with parasites, and it's speculated that by continuously expanding their cities further and further into areas that were jungle, the breeding grounds of these parasites were entered into and they began to infect larger populations. This therefore would have led to a large-scale depopulation, as roundworms can inflict gastrointestinal problems of a severe nature. Acute diarrheal sickness would have infected the young easily, hampering nutritional growth and bodily development, and making them more susceptible to other diseases, exacerbated by the dietary dependence on carbohydrate-rich crops like maize. Then comes one of the most prominent theories, the climate change model. Particularly prescient given the current state of affairs in our modern world, this theory holds that a massive shift in the climate caused droughts that led to crop shortage. Paleoclimatologists have found significant evidence to support the notion that around the time of the Maya collapse in what's called the Terminal Classic period, towards the end of the Classic, there was a mega drought, a massive drying of an otherwise wet region causing both soil erosion and crop failure. This theory isn't totally popular because we only really know whether it was wetter or drier, not whether this specifically led to the collapse of society. But the fact that the northern cities like Chichen Itza, Uxmal and Koba, which were both coastal, thus having greater trade access, and having deeper water tables than the cities of the central lowlands, survived, and the cities of the central lowlands were abandoned as was the region in general. I think there's something to it. Whilst the most common perception is that the Maya lived in the rainforest, they actually lived in something more akin to a seasonal desert. Their predominant water source was rainwater, with the exception of the northern cities which had access to deep lagoon pits called cenotes, which held potable water. Increasingly, climate change has been cited as the cause of a number of other collapses, like the Bronze Age collapse which we've talked about before. The economic degradation and food shortages were probably caused by a series of droughts and then all the other factors simply fell into place after the first few dominoes went down. But rather than pure climate change, maybe it was partially self-inflicted. The ecology of the Maya world might have changed. We used to think of the Maya basing their agriculture on slash and burn models, where you cut down vegetation and then burn it to fertilize the soil and then you move on to other vegetation whilst the first regrows. Instead, modern evidence suggests a vast understanding of things like irrigation, canals, terracing, water storage, fertilization, hydraulics and waterworks, even swamp reclamation. This theory suggests that the deforestation led to a lack of biodiversity and the silting up of waterways led to a collapse of the ecosystem in which the Maya lived and practiced their agriculture. Now, as an addendum to this, almost all of the Maya's ingenious agriculture was dependent on water. If that water dried up or became unavailable, that would lead to a total failure of the agricultural system, thus food shortages. The Maya didn't just clear vegetation for agriculture though. It took 20 trees to be burned to produce the lime mortar needed to build one square meter of their cityscape. Joseph Stromberg of the Smithsonian Magazine put it like this, quote, because cleared land absorbs solar radiation less, less water evaporates from its surface, making clouds and rainfall more scarce. As a result, the rapid deforestation exacerbated an already severe drought. In the simulation, deforestation reduced precipitation by 5-15% to and was responsible for 60% of the total drying that occurred over the course of a century as the Mayan civilization collapsed. A lack of forest cover also contributed to erosion and soil depletion. End quote. Then there's the idea that societies became too complex, that the societal hierarchies that enabled the growth of the cities couldn't work with the cities after that growth. The king-royal family structure that had dominated Mayan cities could have had trouble dealing with changes of classes of people like traders and merchants. 
Furthermore, there could have been a change in the dynamic between the ruling class and the temple class. The royal family had, in Maya society, been heavily involved in much of the city's religious practices, but if that dynamic or balance of power had shifted, then it's possible that the kings would no longer be able to maintain central authority. It's thought that this happened to the city-state of Kopan, when a combination of disease and malnourishment began killing off members of the royal family after having wreaked havoc on the greater population, their ability to maintain authority deteriorated and eventually led to the societal collapse and abandonment of the city. So, where did the Maya go? Well, as I said before, this wasn't the end of the Maya, as many believe, merely the restructuring of their society. The northern cities grew in prominence and the central lowland sites were abandoned. The Maya still exists today. To quote the Kiche Maya feminist and human rights activist Rigoberta Mensch, quote, We are not myths of the past, ruins in the jungle or zoos. We are people and we want to be respected, not to be victims of intolerance and racism. End quote. It's very easy to exoticize or romanticize or mysticize the Maya into something that they weren't, because so many of their sites were abandoned. The North did have its own decline. After Mayapan collapsed in the 1400s, there was no prominent power there to resist the Spanish. But the culture did continue to exist. Although the Spanish took great pains to expunge the native cultures from the Americas, including introducing incredibly strict race-based social hierarchies, the total destruction of inhabited cities to build new Spanish colonial ones, the destruction of texts and stores of native mythology and history, and the restrictions of the speakings of language. But the culture did survive. Millions of people speak the various Maya dialects in Mexico to this very day, and a cultural revival movement has even started trying to bring back some elements of the mythology and cultural practices. Even a modern version of the Mesoamerican bull game called Ulama is making a comeback. But the point is the Maya didn't disappear. They simply changed. Many who'd lived in cities returned to smaller villages in the jungle or in the highlands, living simpler lives of subsistence agriculture or hunting. Population centers tended towards areas with more consistent or permanent water supplies, and they continue to this day. So can we learn any lessons from the Maya collapse? Well, yeah, actually quite a few. The first would be not to take things for granted. The Maya weren't stupid. They were incredibly advanced and highly complex as a society with a solid understanding of their ecology and their agriculture. But expansion overruled common sense and they continued deforesting their lands to the point of soil erosion, and look how it ended. An interesting point of comparison for an example would be the Aztec and the Spanish. Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, is built on Lake Texcoco. When the Spanish took over, they tore down the Aztec temples and built their great cathedrals to stamp out the Aztec culture. But Lake Texcoco is a lake. The Aztecs had a very carefully managed building code that specified what could be built on which ground. Now, Lake Texcoco doesn't exist, and modern-day Mexico City, which almost totally encompasses the area that the lake did, sinks 15 inches every year. If the Spanish had paid attention, they'd have realized that the balance the Aztecs struck was delicate and precise. Their maintaining the amazing city of waterways and floating gardens took great care. But let's not give the Aztecs too much credit versus the Maya, because they didn't last nearly long enough to destroy themselves. But the first lesson then is to take great care to manage what you have. You never know when a sudden change might change everything. The next lesson would be not to over-mythologize people who still exist. In some cases, the cultural change is kind of fine. Nobody in Rome today is getting angry over how we view ancient Rome because the people who live there today are relatively removed from that time period. 
But because we use the term Maya to describe both the ancient civilization in all of its forms and the existing people today, there is this common misconception that the Maya were this mysterious people who knew about all these secrets about the end of the world and then vanished without a trace, leaving only empty cities. And that's not all true. Yes, a lot of their prominent cities were abandoned, and that must have been pretty creepy for the explorers who came across them. But it's not like the people didn't know those cities existed or that the locals weren't the self-same Maya. It is fundamentally a little disrespectful to treat people who have an existing culture and a misunderstood history as a spooky campfire story, or the basis of a dumb action blockbuster flick. That's why I didn't lead today with an example of an explorer stumbling across an empty city. I led with an example of the Spanish encountering the existing Maya in the existing cities, because they did have them, they were there. And sure, people are allowed to take creative liberties with history, but when a large part of the fact that we don't know things about those people is specifically because of things like the oppression of the Maya by the Spanish in the attempted eradication of their culture, it leaves a bad taste in one's mouth to see them flanderized, turned into a parody of themselves. But that will do it for us today, I think. I hope you've enjoyed this little dive into Mesoamerican history as we close the book, for now at least, on the Maya and the Classic Age Collapse. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod and support us on Patreon for as little as £1 a month. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.